What's up, y'all? Welcome to class. This is Diseducation. My name is Mignon. I'm a Black non-binary teacher. And I'm a Vietnamese-American teacher named Quinn. Together, we are looking at what it's really like inside U.S. classrooms and schools through our eyes as teachers of color. In other words, what's happening behind closed classroom doors? Because the reality is that U.S. education is burning, and students and teachers of color are the ones on fire. This is Diseducation. Today, we'll discuss what it's like collaborating with white educators and how their resistance to building anti-racist curriculum mirrors the response stage of the Problem Women of Color framework. Before we dive in, Quinn, I want to acknowledge something that you and I have thought a lot about off the air. We both understand that by doing this podcast, by exploring the Broken Teacher Diversity Pipeline, and by describing exactly how it functioned in our experience, that we're putting ourselves at risk of further retaliation. But that's the thing. As people of color, when we name what happened to us, when we analyze how white supremacy impacted what we experienced, we are violating some really core white supremacy norms. Yeah, I mean, one of those, Mignon, is professionalism, Uh which we're often told is a hallmark of integrity that we should aspire to. But when we actually analyze professionalism, It requires internal silence and punishes transparency. Professionalism isn't some kind of honor code. It's a method designed to enshrine the reputation and power of white people and white organizations. And violations of professionalism, violations of white supremacy, are always going to be met with resistance. When white people hear us talk about the ways we've been harmed by racism, they are not going to reflect They're not going to sit with that discomfort. They're not going to stop and think about how their choices have impacted colleagues. They're not going to consider how students have been impacted. And they're certainly not going to make deep and meaningful changes. Racist white people prioritize their reputation, their power, their position, and they for damn sure won't take responsibility. Yeah, I mean, when racist white people are faced with their behavior, the result so often is to go on the attack. But when white people are reflective, right, when they do those things, when they try to do the work, they start to move away from that stranglehold of white supremacy. But so many won't. And so those kinds of attacks are, I think, a legitimate fear of ours. We're basically abandoning job references, potentially curtailing our career growth. And historically, that's one of the ways racist white people have preserved power and reputation in this country. They've mobilized the law to punish, to silence, and to destroy people of color who step out of line. And so we know that we are putting ourselves at risk. But at the end of the day, teachers and students of color are being harmed. We can't be complicit through our silence. We're not going to let the threat of white retaliation or suppression stop us from talking through the very real issues facing education for teachers and students of color across the country. It'd be easy to look at what we've discussed this season and what we're going to cover in the next few episodes and think, wow, this is just one school site, one district. But Mignon, you and I have worked at multiple schools. We've experienced and witnessed similar events Mm -hmm. across multiple sites. Mm -hmm. This is a pattern. It's a system-wide issue. We are focusing on this particular narrative because we experienced it together. Yep. And while countless incidents such as this have occurred, this is the one that drove us out. 
The last few episodes, we've explored patterns that chase out teachers of color like us. Everything from inequitable workload to white supremacist school culture. The rest of this season will focus on the fallout from a legacy project that ultimately drove us out of the classroom. Let's start with some context. This legacy project was a ninth grade, all grade level research group project. It was supposed to build students' research skills, their presentation skills, their abilities, right, to collaborate with one another on a team. That's ironic. (laughs) And, right, it was interdisciplinary. Us English teachers had to work with the social studies department and the school librarian. What's interesting to note as well is because this is a ninth grade project, um, the social studies teachers um, on the team were teaching a very specific ninth grade class that had students exploring their personal identities and how it connected with power structures in society. For the purposes of this podcast, we're going to call this class Society and Me. Sam! Sam. (laughs) Because this project was required for all ninth grade students, it meant that we were also required to work with these teachers on this project. And you know, this brings me back to actually one of our earlier episodes, because when we were going through the interview process and when we were hired... We were told over and over that this project was going to be this incredible opportunity for collaborating with expert teachers, for getting mentorship. Um, and so this was really kind of touted as this incredible this opportunity, opportunity for new teachers. Yeah. yeah. Little do we know, however, this project was so taxing that it caused a ton of turnover in the English department. Mm-hmm. And they definitely did not tell us that. Mm-mm, kept that one locked up. Mignon, can you describe why the curriculum... I don't know how else to say this was uh, so fucked up. Yeah, it was. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, two major things come to mind for me, and those are the actual content of the project and then the way it was graded. And I think it's worthwhile for us to talk content first, since most folks have no idea what project we're talking about. So this project required students to look at a broad societal problem. One problem for many months. Mm -hmm. And then analyze that problem. And it culminated in a community-wide presentation with a slideshow and a group speech. To clarify what we mean by community-wide is that, right, students are delivering the presentation, but community members are coming out to be audience members. Mm -hmm. And these topics that students were researching, they didn't really have a choice. There wasn't student choice in these topics. Yeah, like imagine a list of anywhere from 10 to 15 topics. Um, And not only was there no student choice, oftentimes, well, to be fair, I do think there was some student choice. I think students got to rank Mm -hmm. what they preferred. Mm -hmm. But there was very little input on what the list of topics could be. So true, so true. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the first year that you and I started teaching there, it was COVID. Mm -hmm. That was Zoom school. And so I think for us, the thing we were thinking about the entire year was student engagement. Mm -hmm. That was absolutely critical. And I was putting myself in the shoes of students. I could not imagine working on something for three months and finding that topic boring. Well, the first first year it was like six weeks. But six weeks is still a long time, especially when if I don't like what we're doing, log off Zoom. Oh, my internet went out. (laughs) Yeah. So for us, student engagement, right, is so important. And so I brought up, hey, like, why not poll students? Let's see what they're interested in. Um, Let's take them into account as we're creating the curriculum this year. Mm -hmm. And people on the team just flat out ignored me. 
They acted like you never said anything. But the minute a white male teacher colleague said the same thing, everyone went, oh my God, brilliant idea. They really did. They immediately were like, let's do it immediately. (laughs) Amazing. And to be fair, I think, you know, it seemed like this teacher, you know, was clocking in what was happening to me and was circling back and bringing this idea in to, you know, to, to actually include it in the curriculum. And he like shouted you out. So once he got the okay... He said, all right, this is great. This is Quinn's idea. Let's loop Quinn in. So he wasn't trying to take yeah. credit. But I think we were already seeing like, oh, some some things in these group, you know, this teamwork dynamic is, is starting to be really telling. Mm-hmm. And then to go back, though, to the content, the topics themselves seemed extremely whitewashed. And the scaffolding often led students to individuals rather than the systems at play. Can you explain what you mean by that? I mean, yeah, we... We used materials that had been created before we got there, and using those materials, which we were required to use, students researching, for example, the plastics in the ocean topic were blaming developing countries. Oh, yeah, they were. They were saying, like, China's the problem. Like, not even, like, where where do they get the plastic that's being shipped to them? (laughs) The United States. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, there's a problem here, and what's happening? Uh, Students who were looking at homelessness were arriving at mental health and addiction problems as the cause of homelessness. Now, are addiction and mental health connected and and a cause of homelessness? Absolutely. Yeah. It would be so naive to say, no, those have no impact. But Are they the only cause? Or like why, right? There's, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. Also, why are addiction and, and mental health yeah. um, issues connected? And also, that's not; those are not the only causes, right? We no can mention look, of redlining. Of redlining. No of, mention of gentrification. Of the many issues at play, right? We, we Luxury housing companies. We look around the Bay Area and we see all these vacant homes, but there's a housing crisis, right? So we know that there are other things happening. I mean, it's a problem, right? When the curriculum that we feel that we're having to deliver to students is reductive. It seemed like what we were being handed was reinforcing really racist, ableist, et cetera, views of the world. And it wasn't giving students a realistic framework for navigating the world they live in. They weren't being taught to make connections, to think critically about why, right? Asking why mental illness, why addiction, and tracing all those steps. I mean, that's what real investigation is. That's what research is. Um, and so it felt like to us the way the curriculum was designed, it was reinforcing negative perspectives on people and communities that our most vulnerable students are connected with and perhaps even a direct part of. And I want to add that we were required to deliver these materials, but because you and I are who we are, we put a little razzle dazzle on them <laughs> before we. What is a little pizzazz? Okay, a little r- r- remix um, before we delivered these to students in our classes. And when we did that, we saw that students could do what we wanted. They mm-hmm. could dive into the why and the how. They could explore nuance. They're so thirsty for it. They want to. They're already doing that work. Exactly. And Gen Z, Gen Alpha we're talking about. Literally. So it wasn't that we had this hypothetical idea of maybe students can do this thing if we try. We did it. We experimented. And we say, saw, hey, this works. And it wasn't just that they produced amazing things. Like you saw in the process what their mind was doing. The learning was deeper.
other teachers on the team, it really seemed like they fought us tooth and nail every time we tried to make topics more nuanced and less reductive. And we saw this when we were developing the topic homelessness into affordable housing and then again into gentrification. We saw this when we were redeveloping a topic into school to prison pipeline. Yeah. And like the reason we were doing all this, and I think it's important to note, we were trying to make these topics more immediate and tangible for the students, right? To show like what's happening is happening in the community you live in, sometimes to people that you know. Um, and another topic that I can think of in the same line was land back. Oh, God. Are we doing this? Although te <laughs> technically speaking, we weren't the ones who introduced it. Okay. So this is really interesting. We did not introduce this topic. Oh, well, and I think the other addendum we have to say, too, is all these topics that we're bringing up in this particular brainstorm session was technically polled and right ideas that students actually brought up first. So we're just voicing the desires and wishes of students. And we're being shot down left and right or told that it was going to be too difficult. It was going to be too challenging. It was going to be too complicated. To students won't be able materials. to grasp their minds around it. The problem is too complex. What problem isn't that is worth researching? Exactly. But the land back one was interesting because it was suggested by a white colleague on this team. And when they made that suggestion, everyone went, oh, my God, that's so yeah. amazing. Oh, my gosh. You're so thoughtful for thinking that's of it. That's going to be a great I mean, one. anytime we were bringing up any topic, right, like gentrification, like school to prison pipeline. Meaning when, about race or yeah, class. <laughs> about a social issue, right? They shut it down. But the minute this teacher brings up land back, it was like, yeah, amazing. But that didn't last <laughs> because... Ultimately, that teacher was not the one to develop the topic. Yeah, when it actually got down to not just suggesting ideas, but actually developing them further, creating materials, resources, right? Um, we were all paired up as teachers and given a stack of topics to develop. And I was paired up with this teacher because the previous year I was the club advisor for Indigenous Club. Um, however, every single time I try to reach out to work on it, and we were nearing the deadline of when the deliverables needed to be created by she ghosted me. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was feeling really stressed. I think you realized that and you sat down and said, you know, like, hey, friend, let me help you develop this. So you're not so overwhelmed by everything you're having to create. And we developed it into this, I think, really amazing research inquiry. And the title of the inquiry was uh, the desecration of sacred Lijan land. So it was hyper local. It was dealing with yeah. these big and important issues. There, was, there are some very specific things happening, right, in the communities that we are living in, in the East Bay, particularly. And that was looking at, like, cultural and economic issues. I mean, it was it was great. It was meaty. It was interesting. But they got pissed that we did that, that we turned the two words land back into something that could actually be researched. I think they were thinking, like, this is a great idea in theory, like by putting it out here in this brainstorm session, we can sound like we're such good people that care about other communities, but they didn't actually think it'd be real. Mm, I could see that being true. And I feel like when we actually made it something tangible and created materials and resources around it, and because it was just us, like I feel like the minute it was the two of us having our hands on anything, they were veto, straight yeah. up no. Anything we touched faced this absurd amount of resistance and so it was the twofold it was that we touched it and it was that the topic explicitly was looking at race was looking at economic policy at these things it wasn't just oh 
we should care about indigenous people and that's it. It was like, no, let's yeah. really get into I, it. And I think to give listeners to a little bit more context, like what were the topics they were saying okay or yes to immediately? Wildfires. Monarch butterflies. Okay. It was, first of all, how are kids, <laughs> I'm sorry, no. How, are, I have to do this. How are kids going to research the issue with monarch butterflies when based on all the research, it's basically solved. Like <laughs> I actually asked a very specific teacher on the team that, and she said that because it was resolved, that was why she wanted them to research it. Because there was something tangible, a solution for them to research and therefore, you know, have a really nice, pretty dot presentation by the end of the research project. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. But the issue with the land back to the desecration of sacred Lijan land topic, seeing how happy they were to accept it when it was coming from a white colleague and how resistant they were once we did the actual labor was incredibly telling. I think what it really emphasized is that they kind of viewed us as workhorses. Mm -hmm. They wanted us to be basically copywriters for them for ideas, materials that they came up with and that they were okay with. But But it had to be within their confines. If we took the lead in anything at all or offered any ideas then that was not, that wasn't okay. Immediate Mm -hmm. retaliation. Mm -hmm. And I think when talking with our mentors, something that often cropped up for both you and I was the sense of, oh, is this just a seniority thing? Or is this about race? Mm -hmm. About either race and the curriculum and the topics and what it means to cover it in there or to have it intersect or what it means for us to be racialized as teachers and having our backgrounds influence what we're creating. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of our mentors would tell us, you know, it could just be they have a lot of pride in what they've created and they're getting defensive because they don't want to have to change what they had worked really hard to create. Mm-hmm. That's a very real thing for right veteran teachers. Um, and I think also as teachers, at least for me, I felt that in this industry in particular, there's this huge emphasis on seniority that if you're new, if you're a new teacher, you're meant to just shut up and follow the lead of those who've been teaching for far longer. Yeah. But to problematize that a bit, in our second year, we were team leads. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> okay. it's, actually, it's actually ridiculous when you think about it, but turnover rate is so high that by the time we're in our second year, we are like, you know, the longest ninth grade teachers that have been there and the ninth grade English teachers. And we are literally given paid leadership role for this project. Whole stipend. Everything. And, and all of the new, we were still the only teachers of color on this team. All of the new teachers coming into this Three team were white. And none of them were facing the kind of resistance that we <laughs> totally were. totally forgot about that. So the whole, it's all, it's, all, it's a seniority thing, I think, uh, falls apart <laughs> when we look at that. I'm just saying correlation. Very, there's some, there's something here. The puzzle pieces are coming together. But ultimately, they wanted our work. They wanted our labor. They did not want our perspectives. They did not want our expertise. And when we created materials that we thought were ethical and equitable, all we faced was resistance. Another thing that pissed us off about the curriculum were the materials being given to students. I mean, us teachers were expected to create everything. Well, hold on. Non-educators might not understand why we care so much about the kind of handouts and worksheets, break it down for them. I mean, because handouts and worksheets is how we create resources and scaffolding. Materials are important, no questions asked, but how they're designed and organized is what differentiates expert teaching. We were giving students 
all the questions that, quite frankly, they should be brainstorming and critically thinking of themselves. I mean, that's what research means, to ask questions. Why are we the ones giving them all the questions that they should be asking themselves? All, like, two pages of questions, y'all. Like, not some big research question, right? Not an inquiry question. Well, we gave them that, too. Like, honestly, they should, we should have helped them develop that instead. Yeah. Um, and resources. Oh, tell them about it. Tell yeah. them about the resource list. I mean, like, instead of teaching them what credible sources, you know, are and how to differentiate, we were just giving them a list. Well, okay. I, I, I want to give them a little credit where credit's due. Uh, one of the te- one of the collaborators did come in and do lessons on credibility and sources. Now I had problems with those lessons too, but they did. They know they did do that work on teaching credibility. But what's the point of doing that if we're literally just going to hand them and here's all the articles you need for this research project? Right. I understand as teachers prepping them, right, prepping that list and having it ready for students who are struggling later on, for students who need accommodations, but like to put it out there at the very, you know, day one of the project, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, right, to questions and resources, solutions. Oh, my gosh. In a project where students are supposed to be developing, researching, um, right, analyzing solutions, we were just giving it to them like a checklist on these worksheets. Yep, yep. It felt like we were just spoon-feeding them. There's a big difference between materials like this Versus materials that are actually designed to help students get there, right? That help students ask the right questions, learn how to investigate, how to problem solve. This, the stuff we were developing, while comprehensive, was just bad teaching. And it really showed some low-ass expectations for students. So low. And the problem is, when students know expectations are low, student engagement will be low. Another thing that I think is interesting is that particularly in our first year at the school and doing this project, I was really trying to understand the purpose of the project, trying to understand why we were doing things the way we were, um, kind of what the goals of the project were. And so I was, you know, it was a remote year, so I couldn't go knock on someone's classroom door. So I was sending emails, just trying to understand. I was asking questions. Yeah, you do. You and ask a lot of questions. I do. That's how you, I feel like, you just want to get to know objectives, purposes. Exactly. Exactly. That's how I function. I like to deeply understand something so that I can better deliver it to students. And the responses that I was getting in these email chains, it felt like a big, like, Fuck you, know your place, sit there, shut up, do what we say, don't ask no questions, we'll call on you if we need you. That was the energy that yeah. I was getting back. I mean, I can corroborate. I was on all those email chains. And I think this is where, too, it, I think our racial backgrounds kind of, at least in my opinion, come into play. Because okay. I feel like I was receiving like a really different kind of energy back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and like my email style is very different from yours. I am <laughs> very curt. I am very to the point. Let's be honest, I email like I'm a white man. Yeah, you do. Okay? <laughs> like a white CEO <laughs> who's a male, okay? And I felt like when I was to the point, making my opinions known, being very curt, I was just being ignored. Like people were literally not hearing what I was saying. It was mind-boggling, actually, the way that they would read the email. And it was like, is that in one ear and out the other? What is happening? 
Yeah, or just like twisting my words itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and with you, I felt like it was the exact opposite. I mean, your emails are always honey-toned. I mean, you're, I can tell that you are choosing each word with care. Diction, okay? English, <laughs> English teacher. <laughs> um, but I feel like the tone, it was, it was wilding. Yeah, the responses were incredibly intense to the point where I was showing them to my mentor uh, who had institutional knowledge, you know, who knew these teachers well. And I was saying, hey, you know, am I overstepping some lines here that I didn't know about? Is my kind of tone off? I want to make sure that I'm building relationships, not burning them. And she was reading my emails and saying, no, your emails are great. Uh, And other people have asked many of these same questions and nobody else gets the responses that you're getting. Mm -hmm. So that was a big fat red flag. (laughs) Yeah. It just felt like the responses to these emails, right, the curriculum, the materials, everything was pointing to the fact that this project was not really focused on building students as critical skills, Mm -hmm. which we believe should have been a priority for a project of this scope. Exactly. Foundational, ninth grade. Instead, it seemed to us the students were just learning how to put a bow on something really pretty, an insubstantial slideshow. Yeah, we'll talk about the slideshow later. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I let's just say slideshow lessons were circa 2000. It was more like PowerPoint era, not Google. Like it was, it was pre-Google Slides. It was, it was. But, you know, given this context that we were in, what did we do? We were really picking where and how uh, to try to make subtle changes that would have large impact. You know, we couldn't remove the spoon-fed questions, but... By the second year, we were able to finagle the uh-uh. solutions away. Uh, don't say we. That was you. <laughs> that was all you. Tell the story. It's actually so funny. Okay. Well, if we go back to when we're talking about the topics, one of our colleagues on this team wanted to talk to us about the topics we developed, right? Gentrification, land back. They wanted to cut some of these topics. Oh, yeah, yeah. We were we were going in here like in defensive mode. They They basically were calling us to the carpet. Uh, to try to get these topics out. And once again, we like to reiterate, this isn't some ego thing. Like these topics are important and vital for our students. And frankly, those groups did the best out of all the groups, so. <laughs> yeah, but so we're going in, we're in defensive mode, trying to protect these topics. And when It's on I'm, the chopping block. And when I'm in conversations like this, again, I tend to ask a lot of questions. I think I get it honest. Yeah, it's your MO. I ask questions because that's how I understand where people are coming from, what they're prioritizing, what they view as important. So I was just asking questions. And as I was asking questions about this curriculum, it started to become clear to me that our colleague had not thought about any of these questions. I ask questions and gently lead her to the fact that the students don't need the solutions given to them. And I didn't say it. I asked her a question and she said, well, the students don't really need the students don't really need the solutions. And so I said, great. So we won't give students solutions then. Well, Let's you, go ahead and delete it and I'll put it in the, the agenda. <laughs> you saw it and you took it. I mean, honestly, like watching this conversation, it was like tennis balls back going back and forth. I was just like, woo. Um, but I think what's interesting is that you were asking really thoughtful, really critical questions about the curriculum, questions that we had been asking. And what it shows is that when being asked the same questions, she arrived the same answers we did, that giving students everything, including solutions, was not good learning. But she didn't want that to be the answer. It was so clear by how frustrated that she was. Because it was different from what she originally had been stating. So it wasn't ever about the actual project, what was actually good for students. 
when I reflect, one of the things that I noticed was that people viewed this project as really special and really challenging for students. And I think part of that is because this was an all grade yeah. project. Interdisciplinary. And all the ninth graders did it, right? The entire community came out for the final presentations. And so it was a thing that made the school look really good. Look at all our students doing this cool it thing. It was a show-off project. Fully. And a lot of the changes that you and I were interested in might have meant that students didn't produce these kinds of neat and clean deliverables, but the learning would have been better. And for us, that's the point. Yeah. Right. I mean, in some ways, the materials we were creating, the research questions, the resources, the solutions, to be honest, I would have been happy if that was actually the final deliverable mm -hmm. because it would have been a lot more substantive. And students would have gotten so, so, so much more. And what I hope that we're starting to see is that as we were moving through this project over two years, there were two connected yet separate things emerging, right? One was that there were aspects of the project delivered to students that we were worried would negatively impact students. And they did negatively impact students. But second, there were some racial overtones, <laughs> not undertones, <laughs> overtones mm. in how you and I were being treated as the sole members of color on this team. So both product and process. Exactly. And we don't really have anecdotes to share about this because we care a lot about student privacy, but needless to say, we had some real concerns that aspects of this project and the deadline piece potentially had us violating IDEA. Mm -hmm. The other thing that drove me up the friggin' wall about this project was the way that it was graded. Uh, students were being graded by randos, by people in the community, by other teachers, some of whom they had never been taught by, and by other students in yeah. other grades. Most of these students were, right, upperclassmen usually taking AP classes because they saw these students as supposedly, um, right, uh, going to be more invested and perhaps more knowledgeable mm -hmm. in grading these students, which I heavily disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, and these students, right, were being given actual rewards for showing up. Mm -hmm. So extra credit, which I think is quite coercive. It is. And... It really is unethical, in my opinion, for students to be graded in this way, right? First of all, I think school culture matters here when we're talking about other students grading. This is not a multiple choice quiz where there's the answer is either B or it's B, right? <laughs> there's no other option. We're talking about subjective grading. And the upperclassmen, not all of them, but in many cases, it felt like they were trying to get the lower classmen or the, the ninth graders, I should say. And it had a real kind of Greek life hazing vibe, right? I went through it. I had to do this hard project. So now you've got to go through it too. Mm -hmm. So Mignon, I'm hearing what you're saying, but um, I think in some ways I, I disagree with you, or at least for me, I see a lot of value and perhaps it's because of my background in classical music, where I'm constantly having to do competitions, mm -hmm. contests. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of value in having people who haven't seen, right? your journey, who haven't been your coaches, your teachers training you to be the one evaluating, evaluating you because there's less bias, right? Um, and there is this idea that we're preparing students for the real world, where the people that will be assessing their work at workplaces or in projects, et cetera, are not going to be the people who saw them do the hard work in creating it. That's really true. But for me, we're still talking about students. I definitely understand the wanting to prepare students. 
not just wanting the, the necessity, necessity exactly yeah. the necessity of preparing students for their professional life in the future. But when they are students, when they're here with us in high school, I think the main difference between what you're describing and what students are describing is choice. So I didn't do classical music, but I sang in choirs, including like professional youth choirs. And so it was a similar thing, right? We were being assessed by people. Uh, my director, if he heard a flat note or a sharp note, he'd stop and point down the line and make us each sing the line until he found who was sharp and he'd call us out in front of everyone. So that kind of pressure and attention and criticism is something I relate to as well, right? In order to make us grow. But you and I chose to do that. I chose to be in choir. You chose to do classical music and compete in those things. Students weren't choosing to be in our English class or to mm. be in the Sam class. It's a core class. Right? And us being in choir and classical music is not necessarily going to affect our lifetime in the same way, right? If we're talking about core classes in English and in social studies, the grade that you get there can affect your, will affect your overall GPA, can yeah. affect scholarships, can affect what colleges you get into, if Quality any at all, life. can affect your earning potential over a lifetime, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to say, oh, teachers have this, you know, incredible power, but there is some responsibility because the impact ripples very far out. Yeah. Although I do want to say that there can be real impacts, right? An addendum for, for students who want to pursue, right, music or something mm -hmm. like that. But there's choice there. There is choice. Um, I think something else that this conversation is making me think of, too, um, is I agree with you that one of the problems was having other students who are barely, you know, within the same age group mm -hmm. who weren't experts themselves. That's key here. Be the ones doing the evaluation, because when you and I did music, the people who were evaluating us, they were other music teachers. Mm -hmm. They were trained professionals. Mm -hmm. That's the part that I didn't get. Why community members or students without any background or expertise in these topics why they were the ones giving students such a massive grade. Yeah, that's the piece. It's that expertise. The other aspect of the grading process that really posed a problem for me were two particular standards. One was professionalism, racist and classist. What else do I have to say? I'll say a lot more. Not right now. <laughs> Future episodes. Uh, and an a criteria called effectiveness of speaker, which in addition to being racist, was also incredibly ableist. And the fact that these were being graded for students was a big issue for me. Yeah. And we'll discuss all this further, but we want to make clear as teachers, we're not saying these things aren't important, that these criteria are important to teach, but there's a really big difference between teaching them, between giving feedback and actually grading them. And I think, you know, ultimately what all this shows is the final deliverable, the slideshow and presentation of this project, the glossing over research and investigation, it showed that the curriculum was prioritizing shiny packaging over substance. Optics. Yeah. And, and you know how we know that prioritizing, um, right, packaging is a white people thing? Food. <laughs> people of color, especially, you know, I can speak for Asians. We don't, we don't eat at places that are clean. That like the minute you see a review <laughs> that is telling you great service bathrooms are actual bathrooms right like that's how you know the food is gonna be shit you gotta go eat at the place where the bathroom looks like a rat died in there oh, and no. they haven't cleaned it up for five months <laughs> that's how you know this food's gonna be good bulletproof glass means the fried fish is gonna be good exactly right but what it showed is that the curriculum was just teaching them how to bullshit now yeah. i'm not saying that that can't be an invaluable skill but 
students, especially in a society that rewards it. Exactly. But students need to learn how to produce meaningful things too. And in this project, what our students were learning wasn't how to research. They were learning how to pair it. We started this episode talking about how this project was central to what pushed us out of the classroom. So what was the harm of this project? Why did it matter so much to our experience, Mignon? First off, this curriculum was harmful. What happens to historically marginalized students who are receiving negative messaging about their own communities through this project? And what happens to white kids who are receiving the same messaging? As teachers who are part of historically marginalized communities, it's not as simple as just removing ourselves or letting harmful curriculum go because we feel powerless to do anything. It is harmful to witness and participate in harm to our students. Mm -hmm. There is a tax we pay for delivering material that we know is racist and harmful to kids, especially when it's also racist towards us. And the tax is real. There are real impacts. Yeah, I mean, I was, I was getting stress hives. Sorry for the TMI. <laughs> I was getting TMJ. So this harm we're talking about, there's harm on students. There's harm to us on teachers. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, as teachers of color, when we see this harm on students, we are then faced with more inequitable labor because we feel called to interrupt that stuff. Because when the equation, right, is, you know, you, you're required to teach this, but also what you're required to teach is racist, then the only ethical consequence, really, is you have to put in the work to do something about it. That's the ethical choice. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, too, as teachers of color, another way I think it harmed us was it really cut into at least on my end, my credibility with my own students. Mm -hmm. They were questioning why what I was teaching was so different from the other units that were much more culturally sustaining. They knew this wasn't your stuff. They yeah. knew it. They could tell. Yeah. And like, you know, in, in all honesty, we've been talking about professionalism a bit this episode, but I think we've internalized that ourselves. Absolutely. We were keeping a lot of things close to the vest. We weren't revealing to our students how we were feeling about the curriculum, about the team, but they can see... They have eyes. They see what this curriculum is or isn't doing. Mm -hmm. And so what this shows is that not only was the product being delivered to students harmful, not only was their racism embedded and baked into this project, but the process of collaboration was harmful to us as teachers of color, the process of working on this project. And we saw up close and personal the way that collaborating with white teachers could be incredibly damaging when racism was going unchecked. Thank you for joining us as we explore how education is failing teachers of color. We believe education can serve all, not just the few. We envision schools as sites of possibility in education as radical care for community. If this episode sparks something for you, email us at diseducationpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at DisEdOfficial. Check out the poll in our bio or in the show notes. Subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Finally, thank you to Anthony Hernandez at The Grill Studio for engineering this episode. And thank you for listening.
See you next class.